Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers and scholars of African American life, arts, culture, politics, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today we will be talking with Houston A. Baker, Jr., Distinguished University Professor at Vanderbilt University. Baker is a well-known literary and cultural critic, and he brings those tools to bear in his new book, that we discuss today, Betrayal, How Black Intellectuals Have Abandoned the Ideals of the Civil Rights Era, published by Columbia University Press in 2008. This book has been described as both a brave and funny vernacular broadside and an important and absorbing meditation on contemporary discussions of American racial politics and politics in general. Let's listen in. Hi, Houston. Hey, Bazan. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're talking to Professor Houston A. Baker, Distinguished University Professor at Vanderbilt University. Baker is a well-known literary and cultural critic, and he is also a creative writer with a recently published volume of poetry entitled Passing Over. We hope to have him on the show again to discuss that book, but today we're talking about his book Betrayal. How Black Intellectuals Have Abandoned the Ideals of the Civil Rights Era. That book was published by Columbia University Press in 2008. This book has been described as a brave and funny vernacular broadside that critiques the doublethink of neoconservative America. It's also been described as an important and absorbing meditation on contemporary discussions of American racial politics and politics in general. I have read this book, and I believe it also offers us a way of even understanding much of today's Tea Party rhetoric and discussions about Obama's political strategies. I hope Baker will spend some time discussing these issues. We're glad to have you on the show today, Houston. Thank you very much, Rajan. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. We were wondering if you could begin by telling us a, a little bit about yourself. Sure. I think it all begins with Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which was the place of my birth. And um, Louisville, in my youth, was um, firmly segregated up to the point of middle school when Brown versus Board opened up the schools in in Louisville. And uh, the most imprinting place that I lived uh, was known as Little Africa. Little Africa was uh, on the fringe of the western part of, of Louisville, Kentucky, and it was actually in a zone that was called, ironically enough, Parkland. So Parkland was, as many of our residential areas in the United States uh, are today, is divided. I mean, you could, could walk uh, several blocks, and you would find wonderful houses and and uh, way of life quite different 
from the shanties and bare subsistence living of the Africa. My parents, uh, enterprising people and wonderful role models, had purchased a grocery store in uh, Little Africa, and my mother, her father, some cousins were people who ran the store. My father was a um, hospital administrator, a waiter, um, a insurance person, one of those like five or six jobs that folks needed in the 1930s and 40s to <laughs> survive. Um, mm-hmm. So we had a kind of variegated cast of, 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 of characters. Um, the one thing that stood out and still stands out for me, and I write about it in the book, is the sense of obligation that we were taught to the people who were less fortunate than we were. And we were taught a deep respect for uh, the black people who were the only patrons, actually, of of the store, of the grocery store in in Little Africa. Um, And we were also given by my father the maxims. um, He would say, what do I require of you? And uh, we would answer. And it was to respect people, all people, speak to them, make good grades, and be a gentleman. Um, and uh, the grades were easy, uh, the respect was easy, but the notion of a, of, of a gentleman was kind of hard because my father was a talented businessman, dancer, entrepreneur, and if that was what a gentleman meant, boy, that was a hard, <laughs> a hard set of things to have to, have to live up to. But if, if I think about the combination of my mom and dad, one of the things I think about is my mother's um, uh, almost hyper literacy. I mean, she was a reader of everything from top to bottom. Uh, she liked romance. Uh, she liked her paperbacks, but actually she had a master's in French literature from Indiana University. She wrote mm. a dissertation in French on Georges Sand. And she would be cooking fried chicken and saying things from Chaucer, like Juan that opera with the Shurisota, or quoting William, uh, or quoting Browning or Wordsworth and mm-hmm. so forth. So I think my real passion for literature um, came from my mom and was nurtured by the first, if I'm not mistaken, Carnegie Library for black people in the country which was in Louisville, Kentucky, on, on Chestnut Street. So I'd walk up there, get my five books that all one could take out for the week, and then go back as soon as I had finished them. Um, the saga thereafter is kind of, you know, like I, I suspect many teenage years. There's, there's the certainty that you'll never make it out, the angst, the rejection, the acceptance, <laughs> all of the things that go with the hormones and craziness of teenagerdom. Um, and that was, I guess, amplified by the integration of, of schools and the group of us who decided that we were definitely going to go to the school, formerly all white, in our assigned district. And the interesting thing is my father said, you can't go to that school those people are poor whites, and they will beat your head in. As far as I know, my father had never really ever been in the area where the school was located. (laughs) Uh, Of course, we all went. We had 
some interesting incidents the way all teenagers do. Um, but it was it was a, a perfectly fine experience. And then the same group of us and supplement it went on to a um, newly integrated high school, which was called uh, with all of the uh, whatever uh, patriarchy one can imagine, male M A L E high school. And when uh, Brown versus Board uh, became the law of the land, women came to this high school, and so they changed the imprimatur to male and girls high school. And then I think the letterhead was just already too large, so they couldn't put male and girls and Negroes. <laughs> <laughs> male and girls high school. Um, on to Howard University, UCLA for graduate school, and then a series of uh, universities that have been kind enough to to have me on board um, and to provide it. You know, mm-hmm. Nice resources and Enjoyable experiences for both me and my wife. I met my wife the first week of freshman year at Howard University. Wow. As I jokingly say to people now, you know, I really, really have had a pleasant time with my first wife. They always look, you know, like my only wife, my only (laughs) wife. Uh, I feel fortunate. I feel fortunate and blessed. Very nice. Recently, you um, have been speaking and writing about your years at Howard. Uh, Can you speak to us about that for a moment? I absolutely can. And I will have to start with the proper ashe and thanks to you, Vashon, because I have totally enjoyed the experience of working with you on the um, collection that you edited uh, from bourgeois to bougie, Um, and uh, this summer I introduced um, about 80 teachers over two weeks uh, through a Florida Humanities Council seminar on Zora Neale Hurston to the the book, and boy, they just ate it up. They they loved it. It just resonates with, you know, so many vectors and registers of, of experience, and these were teachers who were Hispanic and black and white and so forth, um, but Thank you for including my essay in, in the volume. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it was great writing it, a wonderful copy editor. Your copy editor told me, as a matter of fact, you know, um, something that I was able to run off and, and show to my wife. She said, you write like the wind. Right. <laughs> I remember oh, that. Yeah, huge props, huge props, you know. But then she went on to say, as copy editors a lot, but sometimes you get so tangled up in your academic, you know, uh, idiom. And I thought she's right about that, too. Well, the Howard years were ones that, that found me in a metropolitan area unlike any I had actually lived in. I had visited Washington, D.C. and New York and um, Chicago, but actually the set-up shop in, in Washington, D.C. was immensely exciting. Um, the Howard University campus was, for me, uh, a status of, of class elevation. Um, I thought, because my mom belonged to Jack and Jill, and my father was a hospital administrator, and we had a middle class, um, or at least we called ourselves that, um, when we got self-conscious on those matters, which was not all that often, in Louisville, Kentucky, 
Well, boy, when I had Howard's campus and was a member of an organization called the Campus Pals, and these amazing cars were driving up, you know, the Lincolns and the Cadillacs, and these sharp black people were getting out of the cars dressed to the nines, and then they would pop the trunk, you know, those were huge cars, right? And they would pull out two foot lockers, and mm-hmm. one father proudly proclaimed to me, he said, and you know what? And I said, what, what's that, sir? He said, this is not all of her clothes. You know, this is not all of her clothes. <laughs> She's got this many at home, you know, in the closet. And I thought, Jesus, I came with one foot locker and only half of it had clothes. In, you know? So I was meeting a whole new order of African-American uh, folk who had traveled extensively, shopped extensively, and as I say in the essay in your marvelous book, they spoke without an accent all their lives. So there I was with my Louisville accent, my high water pants, my stocking capped hair, and I was like, whoa, new new ball game. Mm-hmm. And actually the ball game of choice, the one that, that gained you the greatest merits, um, was precisely what E. Franklin Frazier described as black bourgeoisiedom. Um, uh, anecdote from those days that is not in the essay is I, I pledged the fraternity and the line leader um, who was beautiful guy athlete dark complected you know objected to the unanimous choice of of the line for the person who would represent us some woman uh, from uh, a sorority and we said but why why would you do that and he said. Well, man, it's simple, isn't it? She's just too black. She's too black. And I thought, whoa, not then, but certainly later. So this idea of color struck, color consciousness, what you wore, the amount of money you had, the uh, necessity, at least felt by me, to lose your native accent and to get on board with a certain agenda, which didn't seem to have a lot to do, but I didn't think about it too carefully, with the interest of the people who I had left behind in Louisville's Little Africa. So it was a, an exercise in bourgeoisification, mm-hmm. um, and it left me, you know, critically unprepared for things that I should have been prepared for, like knowledge of the unfolding, even as I was there, civil rights movement, black power movement, imperialistic war in Vietnam, undeclared war, of course. These just were not matters for the majority of us of everyday life, even though people like Stokely Carmichael were at Howard and were traveling south and going to Cambridge, Maryland, and and engaging in activities that were proving increasingly successful in calling attention to the plight of the black majority. Um, so I kind of escaped there with my life, but not, one might say, my honor. Um, mm-hmm. Within mm-hmm. the sense of race men and race women and the work they do. Um, and um, it was the black arts that intervened uh, later in my life. That was my Howard experience. Thank you for that. Uh, so why the book? Why Betrayal? Um, well, you know, the, the 
the interesting thing to me when I looked at this final product, um, and that question was, was first asked, was how long the process of, of gestation was. Um, uh, Henry Louis Gates, Jr. published an essay in the New York Times uh, book review, Sunday Times book review, um, oh, now it must be 12 or 13 years ago. And the, um, the article dealt with um, a book called The Lesson of Little Tree by Forrest Carter. Um, and Forrest Carter is the one who wrote that famous speech, Segregation Now, Segregation Tomorrow, Segregation Forever, for mm-hmm. Wallace. And uh, he presented this book, The Lesson of Little Tree, as an Indian uh, or Native American autobiography. So Professor Gates's argument was, so what if it was written by Forrest Carter? Uh, why should why should this make a difference? Why should Native Americans have exclusive dibs on the experiences of Native Native Americans or the genre of let us say Native American autobiography? And then he went on to render a critique of those black writers who responded to William Sparrow's uh, The Concessions of, of Nat Turner uh, and made the claim that the uh, volume, Ten Black Writers Respond, mm-hmm. um, was a snappish, uh, ethnocentric, um, ill-conceived, critical gesture by people who were saying you have to be of the blood and the genealogy and the lineage of a people in order to produce anything of worth that has to do with the, uh, the, the people. Well, that wasn't our claim, right? I mean, I wasn't one of those writers who wrote for the volume, but I certainly joined the fray where William Starin and the confessions of Matt Turner were, were concerned. And I thought, is it true, really, that this is something that Professor Gates intends for the elucidation and greater glory of African-American literature, uh, African-American people, an emergent interest in African-American cultural studies, or is this something that signals a turn in maybe general, or at least a section, of uh, writing about black culture by black intellectuals. And I sort of concluded that it was the latter, that this was not really a piece that was designed for the black arts movement or for the black aesthetic or for the advancement of what I will, in this instance, simply call um, self-generating or culturally generated African-American uh, cultural productivity, um, but rather a kind of olive branch held out to all to come. We won't bite your hand off. We won't render the harsh critiques. Um, write about anything you will. And um, so it was called Authenticity, his essay, as I remember it, and the lesson of Little Tree. And the claim was that there is no such thing really as authenticity. Mm-hmm. Everyone can be fooled, and there it was. So that was a long time ago. And, and then as I thought about what was implicated, and I hope I've captured it sort of briefly, in this genre of writing that was represented by uh, Professor Gates' essays and began, essay and began to 
look around, it seemed to me that a turn was taking place. Uh, in one instance, a theoretical turn where people were looking to, well, in the word French literary theory that had come on stage, especially at Yale uh, University. And then on another frame, we're sort of saying, let's attack the black arts, black aesthetic, black power movements and implicitly argue for, oh, I don't know, a new cosmopolitan critical intellectual dispensation. Um, and I thought that was terribly dangerous. I still think that's terribly mm-hmm. dangerous. Um, I did say recently, and there's no need not to repeat it here, that I do believe Professor Gates is probably the most dangerous black intellectual in the United States. I don't know about other countries. Um, And by that, I I suppose I'm trying to signal the kind of turn toward um, corporate financing and a kind of critical pox neoconservatism or centrist within intellectual domains um, that presumably was going to be more respectable and I suppose the hope was uh, more efficacious in the office of some sort of universalizing set of criteria for judging the arts, even for judging behavior, as mm-hmm. a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. So it evolved over you know, at least a 10-year period um, as I took up other uh, intellectuals, other books, um, and all at once in, in the way these things work out. There seemed to be enough coherence to go forward and try to get a, a contract to publish the book. Um, Columbia University Press and uh, Jennifer Crew were magnificent. They, they, just, they made it a much better product than it would have been in anybody else's hands. Um, that's kind of the evolution. Um, more? You want to know more? Well, I remember uh, being a graduate student at the University of Illinois at Chicago when you had come there to give a talk. Uh, and your talk oh. was about um, some of what is in the book, um, uh, a draft version earlier. Uh, and you were mm-hmm. talking about Shelby Steele at that time and yeah. uh, John McWhorter. And I remember philosopher Charles Mills asking you why you had chosen those Two particular figures. He he seemed to, if I remember correctly, intimate that they were uh, not intellectual heavyweights in the same order as you are, and that they were easy targets for you. Um, yes. But you stuck with yeah. the, with them as subject matter in the book, and could you tell us why? Sure, absolutely. I um, early on in in um, actually on the first page of the trail begin talking about the kinds of credibility that has been accorded to writers like Shelby Steele and John McWhorter. And I can really be wonderfully specific here and say that the Hoover institution is not which is where, of course, Professor Steele spends his time and receives compensation um, and a kind of bully 
pulpit of conservatism and neoconservatism. Uh, it's it's not a bohemian bistro coffee shop, <laughs> you know, with typewriters. Uh, it's it's highly corporately funded, and its stamp of approval carries a long way in the corporate slash industrial capitalist um, uh, complex. So what he says and the site from which he speaks, it seems to me, is extremely influential in policy, politics, and distribution of cultural and monetary capital. Um, Professor McWhorter is speaking from the Manhattan Institute, which is I mean, right? I mean, it's a bank. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's financed by corp- the same corporate interest, and therefore receives credibility in very influential circles. But here's the thing. I mean, it seemed to me that there had not been a thorough critique of what had actually been produced as books and arguments by people like John McWhorter and by Shelby Steele, and that in order to avoid the kind of, and you know these the exchanges, you know, well, I believe in W.B. Du Bois because he was uh, radical and, and wanted to bring down colonialism and the white powers would be, and someone says, yes, but Booker T. Washington was on the ground, and he really wanted black people to engage in manual handicrafts and so forth. And, of course, the the kind of rigor of study that I know you demand of your students, that I demand of my students, that any good teacher demands of his students, that, well, you can't simply produce cliches. You mm-hmm. can't say, well, Shelby Steele is a good guy, he's well-meaning, uh, and, gosh, don't black people need to be chastised for being well, so black, you know, or you look at McWhorter and you say, well, he, he makes some really good points. You know, well, the ghetto is overly dependent, and these black men are having babies, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad he said it. And then you go like, but where did he say it, and how did he say it, and can you give me the structure of his argument? And people would say, oh, you know, you're just too intellectual. I mean, mm-hmm. why do we need to know this? And so I think if, if, if one avoids the odd, uh, hominem, you know, and predicates any proposition, I mean, like mine earlier uh, in this conversation about Professor Gates, you have to be able to back it up with, Mm -hmm. you know, an argument. You can always be shot down in the argument. Um, So, I mean, the idea of the intellectual heavyweightedness of things is interesting, too. Um, I mean, I don't want to get off target or lose anybody in the tracking here, but the kind of scrutiny of what we, and it's a large class, um, of black or diaspora intellectuals produced is differentiated, right? Even among us as black or diaspora intellectuals, Mm -hmm. so that For example, you will find someone saying, well, why are Stephen Best and um, Sadia Hartman worried about what's not in the archives or the lacuna, uh, the vacuum that is there 
uh, and in their attempts to grapple with the circumatlantic, right? Why don't they just go and do archival work mm-hmm. and produce books that are, you know, um, acceptable to the historical profession, for example, right? And, I mean, you think, well, how could anybody not read the work of Stephen Best or Sadia Hartman or to, you know, some lesser, because certainly Vincent Brown is, is more along the field protocols of, of the historical profession, but not read these books and come to larger and more exciting uh, conclusions and protocols and prolegomena to study of the circumatlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that kind of, you know, we want to shut you down if you are not living up to, let us say, your potential and meeting the regulations of the field with work that I find sometimes, and this is oxymoronic, but deeply without passion, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the awards are the same, you know. And then the, the, the obverse of that, of course, is to give uh, a book critic's circle award to <laughs> for the content of our character. <laughs> yeah? So let's a, let's talk about know. that for a moment. Let's talk about that because okay. you spend several pages on uh, well, it's a whole chapter in fact on Shelby Steele, but pages on that that he received the award for um, this book that that you say uh, is filled with um, fallacies and uh, uh, inconsistencies. Yes, yes. I mean. Let's just go with uh, bait and switch as a kind of vernacular way of talking about this. Okay. Um, Still says he's going to give us a new vision of America. Mm-hmm. All right. And cutting to the chase, what Shelby Steele gives us is warmed over neoconservatism that certainly had been better prepared. Uh, by Irving Kristol and Norman Baderitz and uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb and so forth. When I say better prepared, I mean, I thoroughly, of course, contest their their arguments and claims, but at least within their text, there is a coherence, a consistency, um, one might even say a kind of probity about what they're doing. Um, in the contents of our character, I mean, there are ludicrous kinds of pins to the goodness of white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, fine, you know, that's 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 you know, if you want to do that, but don't tell us that everyone should accord themselves in the way that still. Remember, he says I flirted with black power. I dressed up. I burst out or challenged the dean and mm-hmm. dropped ashes on a drug and so forth. And for this, I am now heartily sorry, because when I think back about his intentions, I know that he must have been as befuddled as others by, who by black, black people <laughs> trading on white guilt. And I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> what are you talking about? That's ridiculous, you know? Um, or even, right, should we step outside the domains of Kantian, you know, 
philosophical uh, propositions um, and say, well, we can know the intentionality of the person, you know, then we would have to go cocky and again and say, but they didn't translate <laughs> into mm-hmm. any good for the black people, including you. Um, so this, this, this kind of, you know, um, patronizing of blacks, you remember he says, we were having a fine discussion of Toni Morrison when one of the black students interrupted us and said, I think we should pay attention to black history. And I thought, really? Seriously? You thought the student interrupted by saying Morrison needed to be considered in the vein of black history? When all one has to do, of course, is to read Toni Morrison's manifestos, Mm -hmm. what she wants to be, what she's doing as a writer, and so forth. So it's a very hypocritical, poorly argued text that swarmed over neoconservatism. And for it to have been given the award speaks, I, I think, kind of toward the the headiness of, um, let us say, a certain cast of, oh, I don't know, readers of race in United States polity and cultural economies. Um, mm-hmm. People who are looking for the book you can read on the plane, feel really good about race relations in the United States, pull it out of your briefcase when you get home and give it to your wife, son, daughter, cousin, uncle, and say, now this guy really knows what he's talking about. Right, right. <laughs> some some people yeah. might be surprised by something in the book on, on the surface. Uh, yes. Some critics, well, the three critics that seem to go together obviously are Shelby Steele, Stephen Carter, John McWhorter. People might uh, call them black neoconservatives or that they write in that vein. But you also talk about, um, as you mentioned earlier, Henry Louis Gates, uh, Cornell West, and Michael Eric Dyson, whom many people might identify as being on the opposite uh, political and um, uh, side of racial politics than these others. Can you talk about how they all come together um, for you in this book. Sure, yes. Um, my um, claim uh, and uh, betrayal is that uh, we could do a lot worse than to look at um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as at least until we move beyond it. And Acme and um, absolute model of what the race man, race woman, or the black public intellectual should aspire to become. Um, mind you, um, the caveat, of course, is that King is not without flaws, not without uh, his excesses, um, without the critique, for example, of the recent documentary, which I thought was quite brilliant, on the Freedom Riders. Uh, for not joining the Freedom Riders' generational conflict between King and Stokely Carmichael, later Kwame Touré. Um, but, but having said that, um, let me say that the things that King championed were quite clearly a redistribution of wealth uh, globally that would empower the impoverished and those lowest down. 
an end to American Pax Americana and imperialism and an equality not of token numbers, but an equality of results. That is to say, affirmative action for King was not the spook who sat by the door, but rather we would know that we had succeeded in affirming the um, principles of, of, of the country, of the nation, when one could look around and find not token representation, but an equity of resources and life chances. I mean, this was just the man, man put everything on the line. He went to jail. He was beaten. He died at uh, the hands of an assassin um, attending a strike of garbage workers in Memphis, Tennessee, three hours from where I'm sitting right now. It is impossible to imagine, okay? I mean, I know the temper of the times has certainly altered drastically. Um, for me, and I put this in the book, and I mean, it could be a little humorous or it could, I'm, I'm, maybe it's a little bit much, but I do say that I can't imagine any of the people you have mentioned here or that are mentioned in the book, uh, Shelby Steele, John McWhorter, Stephen Carter, Michael Eric Dyson, Henry Lewis Gates, or Cornel West, uh, flying coach class. Now, <laughs> a real brawl of resistance on the part of a, not even predominantly, but an all-black person cry about inequity in any situation. And particularly, I can't envision them going to a garbage man strike uh, anywhere uh, and flying coach and putting you know everything on the line for that. So, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a consistency in the class situation of the uh, folks who are mentioned in the book. But I also think there is a kind of um, um, trickery on the part of those I call centrist intellectuals. Um, and that chapter is called Have Mask Will Travel. And when I say trickery, I think what they're selling is often a kind of uh, pablum of implicit post the necessity to argue from a standpoint that I would call um, black majority committed. We no longer can do that or need to do that. The black majority really just needs to pull itself together, do its own bootstraps kind of uh, thing, and to sell that, as a doctrine that has any legs vis-a-vis policy or the redistribution of resources or an end to the kind of brutality and violence that marks, for example, now Iraq, Afghanistan, the so-called Middle East, which you know, people kind of forget that that's in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think there is a... a, a a comedy uh, among those intellectuals in that way. Um, the neoconservatism is such a bother. I mean, it's a bother because um, if one reads Crystal uh, and Himmelfarb and, and uh, Potterits and, and others um, and their avatars, um, the deep racism and implicit white supremacy that's in those kinds of utterances um, seem to make it 
uh, unwelcome gruel for people like Shelby Steele and Stephen Carter and John McWhorter, but, but they eat it right up and they transform it a little bit and then they, they give it back to us as uh, obiter dicta or ex cathedra writings on, on black people. Um, what what bothers me about um, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. can be somewhat sub, uh, synoptically captured by a recent Democracy Now! show, which I'm sure you saw, uh, uh, devoted to um, uh, the new biography, Manny Marable's biography oh, of Malcolm X. And the, the lead voice there on the screen behind Amy Goodman and her confrere was Michael Eric Dyson, but Baraka was there, and so was her boy, and um, Baraka was uh, laying out his complaints against um, uh, the Gates-Dyson um, um, kind of ideological nexus, and he said, Henry Louis Gates Jr. can critique racism in Cuba, but not in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs>
he's pretty glad that Senator, then Senator, Barack Obama, had called folks in the inner city to account in the speech that he made at the national convention. So now there's a troika of people suggesting that if parents just read to their children and for some reason black young men would come out of the often, I think, disguise of low-hanging pants and ebonics or African-American vernacular English, um, the community would somehow get resourced and there would be honey and bread and, you know, milk and honey uh, flowing in the streets of South Central and uh, inner city Detroit and so forth. And I just, you know, that that's pablum or I guess the lecture circuit, their own kind of Chautauqua. What you say in the book is that um, uh, speaking with fiery and self-righteous condemnation against the black majority has always been and seems to remain a popular, well-financed, and best-selling vocation in America. There's two things about this that I want to ask. One, you you just mentioned um, Barack Obama, and I want to ask you, do you think that speaking uh, against or condemning the black majority is in some ways a requirement, um, an expectation on the part of um, uh mainstream America, for lack of a better term, in order for um, African-Americans to uh, reach a certain status. Um, Well, in Barack Obama's case, in order to be president of the United States. The other question I want to ask in connection to that is, don't you hear these same kinds of condemnations being uttered among the black majority themselves? Uh Aha. Good. Very good. Both, 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 both questions. But you know, I hate it when people say things like that to me. You know, when I say I have two questions, and then they go like, "Good question," and I think to myself, <laughs> "Would I ask that question?" <laughs> so, so self-congratulatory. You know, one has understood the question. Uh, but but the, the, the first question, I think, has um, uh, two possibilities. One, you um, have to take a stance vis-a-vis the black majority, because uh, as one of my, you know, points says, no matter where you travel, you still be black, right? Uh, So there you are, standing in the boardroom, or you're on the plane, or, you know, any of these public venues, and uh, the guy sitting next to you or standing next to you says, well, you know, I'm just really encouraged, you know, where we've come vis-a-vis your people, and you go like, my people? <laughs> who are my people? I mean, I know who my people are, right? You know, but you know, you're thinking, well, I've transcended because I'm on the board. You know, I'm a distinguished professor. I'm this, that, or the other. I, you know, so you are compelled to take a stance. Now, one, I think, and I would say yes, I agree with what I've written. Um, and you can condemn that majority and say, I've tried to work with those people, and you always have an anecdote about the guy who, you know, the family was homeless, and you gave him a job and a tryout, and he just proved inept and didn't want to work, and he disappeared and so forth. Um, 
or you can do a general condemnation and talk about uh, unwed mothers and hip-hop and violence and drug trafficking and so forth. The other strategy, however, is to maintain a stoic, stolid um, silence on the very term, as you know, Bob Herbert um, has said, of our current chief executive, the phrase, the black poor, mm-hmm. okay, has, has not been uttered, you know, as part of any public policy initiative or the kind of plan that Dr. Martin Luther King wanted to see, redistribution of wealth, uh, what are being called entitlement programs. Um, and so, you, you know, you maintain that in order to, why would you address people by ethnicity? Wouldn't that be racially suspect and so forth? I mean, I had friends who told me during the recent, uh, the last presidential campaign, that if Obama had focused attention and made promises vis-a-vis the efficacious allotment of resources to the black and the poor, the black majority, he certainly never would have become president of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said, you're concerned about ideology. And I said, I am concerned about ideology because I don't believe there's anything that's not driven by ideology, you know, whether it's spoken or not. Um, So now, though, some of those same people are saying to me, why do you continue to call Obama, you know, with our black president to account? And I say to them, well, I'd like for you to read the work of Greg Thomas, who is left of the left up at Syracuse, when he says, who, any person of real, um, let's say, peaceful intent, um, larger distribution of wealth intent, those things, again, that were Martin Luther King Jr. ideals, who would want to be chief executive, uh, commander-in-chief, and leader of the free world? I mean, because it's a slot, right? I mean, it's a slot where <laughs> when you move into it, you can't say, well, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is cancel the military budget and bring all the troops home. Right. I mean, you don't inherit a position even as a legacy that's handed down. You inhabit a space right. that is marked by necessities of some pretty dire and terrible things and especially terrible silences like the black poor. Now, the other side of this, I mean, the other question you asked was, don't you find the condemnation of the worst aspects of everyday life in zones of what I call zones of confinement of the black majority, don't you find condemnations among the people themselves? Yes, surely you do. I mean, there, I can't imagine a um, what resourced enough to keep everyday life going and the children fed uh, black mother Hispanic mother uh, of aspiration and desire not condemning the drug traffic not approving
gets the kids in after dark, not um, speaking in the harshest possible terms of obscenity and profanities coming out of the mouths of groups of black young black men and women moving up and down the streets of, of her neighborhood, uh, or if a man, his neighborhood. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think we have ever been an uncritical people. I mean, again, if we do look strictly at the archives of our aspirations as Africans in America, as a diasporic people, and you, you see the things that we've written, the orations that we've given, the calls to, quote, decency, respectability, whatever, of our whole genealogy, sure, the critique is, is, has been there and is, is still there. What I find dispiriting today, okay, is that people, and Henry Louis Gates and Cornel West implicitly do this in their book, The Future of the Race, suggesting that there may be some innate deficiency among the black majority that creates these kinds of behaviors. So they give the behavioral explanation in advance of the structural <laughs> reality that have produced these conditions. Right. And then when you say to them, well, guys, you know, do you think we should organize and ask for reparations? They go like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. How would you know who to give it to? Ava Sean, I would know who to give it to. Right. <laughs> they could put me in charge of the reparations commission. And I, I'm sure there would be big complaints, but I'm also sure that I would instantly have a phalanx of people who would, you know, turn on a dime and find themselves doing quite different things from what they're doing at 2.12 Central Time on a Wednesday in a hot July. So that's, that's the bother of the, um, you know, the, the pronouncements from the uh, ivory tower about the behavioral, indigenous behaviors of the wretched of the earth that make them unfit for civilization. You know, I mean... This past semester, I taught a graduate seminar that was, was terrific content. People were so smart. I learned so much. But, I mean, Césaire, the discourse on colonialism, this became this touchstone for the course. Um, and and the, the phrase that returned to all of our discourse was his proclamation in that, that, that uh, wonderful book, Europe is indefensible. Europe is indefensible, mm. and to find someone situated, you know, in political the United States of America is indefensible, or direct to the immigration, impoverishment, and confinement of Jersey. Houston, I'm going to ask you to pause because yeah. I, I can't hear you anymore. Can you? Oh, okay. Okay, now I can hear you better. We could always edit this. Okay. I'm, I'm going to edit this part out, but uh, there was something okay. that happened for a moment. I, I didn't get okay. the last thing you said. 
Okay. Okay. I was talking about Cesaire's book, Discourse on Colonialism. Okay. And saying I had a terrific graduate seminar last term. And the phase of that book that resonated through all our discourse was Europe is indefensible. And to find someone in the positions of the gates, the dice of the West, who would make that the premise of a talk that would be pushed in social and so forth, uh, as in political institutions of the United States of America are indefensible, is not likely to happen on, you know, the, um, I don't know, John Stewart show or whatever. Um, there we go. Now, it's obvious in the book that you um, spend the entire time talking about African-American men, male intellectuals. Where do women fit into this conversation at all, or how do they? Are they not excluded from talk on um, black racial politics and the class structure, the black majority and victimology, et cetera, or um, why, why all men? Um, well, one humorous uh, answer to that is um, my good friends, uh, whom I have a number, and remember now, my wife has been my wife for um, about 45 years and is my best editor, counselor, and advisor. Um, they said, do you have any idea how much trouble you're going to be in when this book is published. (laughs) I thought, okay, I don't need to get into trouble with any other constituency than the one that I've chosen for critique. And uh, that's the the humor side of it, the realistic, um, uh, well, actually, what should I say? The subjunctive side of it was um, if I were to produce a kind of follow-up book to this one, it would be who is on the right side, as it were, not politically right, but on the correct or proper side. And I had uh, begun to sketch out the people who would mark such a book. And it's really, you know, it's quite interesting now that I think about it and you've asked the question. Um, Lonnie Guineer was going to be you know, in the lead uh, cast of, of of characters, and Angela Davis was was certainly going to mm-hmm. occupy a large portion of um, uh, of whatever was was produced. So, you know, I I, I don't want to make the distinction on the basis of of gender of good and bad, because certainly one has a figure like my own colleague. Here at Vanderbilt, Carol Swain, who you know is uh, as far away uh, from oh I don't know King and as close to Carter and Steele as, as you can get. So you know this is not uh, uh, this this kind of distinction that can be made on the basis of gender. But those were people who, if I think even now, if I took up a follow up, would would be in the lead of things that are going on. And, you know, that's, that's not incommensurate, right, with things that have been happening recently uh, with that fabulous 
uh, Barbara Ramsey um, um, biography of Ella Baker mm-hmm. and the moving forward um, in the work of someone like Brent Staples on Diaspora, where the Nordal sisters take you know a front and center and important space in in the work and women's voices are heard. So I think maybe um, it's something that we're going to see more of in the future. I taught your book recently in a class. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I actually have taught it about three times now. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Thank you, sir. (laughs) But one of my students asked me a question um, and actually asked me to ask you a version of that Mm -hmm. question. One of the students asked, asked it, I think somewhat this way, how does Houston Baker now get to talk about uh, uh, having interests in the black majority and putting intellectual uh, scholarship and effort in the service of the black majority when, in fact, this was one of the primary points that um, Joyce Ann Joyce was making in her um Essay that spawned the tripartite discussion, the Joyce Baker, Joyce Gates. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, can you speak to that? Right. Sure, I can speak to that. Um, um, the moment, one of those that I talked about earlier in the conversation of the turn to theory um, and moving on the other side of black arts movement and the black aesthetic and uh, so forth um, has to do with, for me, um, I, I can say anecdotally, I, I started writing an essay after I had published a couple of books, and I realized that the rhetorical strategy of it made it kind of like a template, a boilerplate. You know, black people must claim their own destiny. Black people must see their own beauty. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I don't think this is analytical enough for the world we've entered. And I set out self-consciously to make myself into a literary theorist whose attention was primarily upon the black arts. And um, so... Met entailed French theory. My mentor at Penn, who was Barbara Hernstein Smith, um, a stint at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences out at Stanford, and just a whole prodigious lot of reading that uh, I guess coalesced in blues ideology and Afro-American literature of vernacular theory. Mm-hmm. Here was my thinking. Um, if we are going to contend for the greatness, the power, the eloquence, the rhetorical effectiveness, uh, the life-changing effects of the black arts, and we're going to contend at an academic level, then we're going to have to at least understand and here's Audre Lorde, right? The tools of the master, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you dismantle the master's house with the master's tools? 
My answer is, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you understand those tools well enough, you know what I mean? And you don't dismiss them out of hand. I mean, I, you, you've heard this before. I mean, there's people going like, well, Marx was a white man. You know, what did he know? And you go like, oh, no, we can't have that conversation now. <laughs> you got to read Marx. Oh, but Marx is dead. Nobody's reading Marx. You go, I know, but you got to read Marx. Right. You know, those people who are no longer reading Marx have already read Marx. So, um, you know, and I also heard the hype recently that the book is dead. You know, all you need to do is write a couple of good articles. Not in the tenure proceedings that I've been involved in in the last five years. So I took um, Joyce Joyce's um, rejoinder or uh, critique of uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. as theorist and Houston A. Baker as theorist to read as follows. There is a level of uh, commandable literacy and understanding on the part of students who come to us for our instruction and wisdom, and we should accommodate them at the level where they find themselves and we find them. Well, I mean, Louis Gates' answer was, you know, when she said she couldn't understand it, uh, you could have said, well, why don't you get a thesaurus and a dictionary and begin looking at their sources and, you know, see if you can make yourself, um, I don't know, literate alerted in, in their sources. And for me, the, um, the job of pedagogy has become increasingly exciting. I mean, I know people who say, well, I'm sort of burned out, and this generation doesn't do this and that, and they're on Facebook, and you know, on and on. I mean, you know, the critique that gets rendered of, of students, they don't want to learn, they don't read uh, books, you know, even when they have Kindles, they don't. And it's ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that pedagogy is about finding people at one place, and not accommodating your pedagogical expectations to where you find them, but saying kind of flat out, we're going to travel in ways that are difficult, demanding, are going to absolutely command your attention, and if you throw yourself into this 100%, it's going to be a beautiful enterprise. And, I mean, my seminar and other graduate seminars I've taught here at uh, Vanderbilt uh, and honors undergraduates have absolutely been rejuvenating for me um, mm-hmm. as I've turned increasingly toward diaspora studies. So yeah, I you know I I, I understand um, the the critique. I I understand the tears. I understand the lament for the notion of abandonment when I would call it. Um, kind of setting the bar really high and demanding that people get over it if you're going to walk and hope to walk in the same corridors with people who you say have for so long colonized you, dehumanized you, denigrated you, and now you want to do combat and bring forward your riches in a way that commands attention I mean, the bar's got to be high. It's just, it's, you know, call it elitist. Um, 
I've been called to lead us before. <laughs> I know we've been talking for a while, and I, I want to be able to ask you a couple more questions and also to ask you to read a little bit from the book for us. But I want to extend this point just a little bit longer because uh, for me, I think that the kind of work that you do in betrayal – um, mm-hmm. where there's a range of interdisciplinary texts, where there are readings of literary texts from Milton. I mean, you, you talk about George Schuyler, um, et cetera. For me, that is actually an um, exemplification of the argument that Joyce was making, that uh, if, in fact, uh, scholars are concerned about um, the masses of black people as literary um, writers were like Richard Wright and Ann Petrie, et cetera, that they themselves mm-hmm. were also critics and they wrote in a way that was um, uh, one, accessible, and two, um, connected to mm-hmm. those issues. And so for me, this this is exactly it. Um, it it, it, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like it was an argument um, uh, to not teach, so to speak, but one, yeah. and what, what would that teaching and what would we teach? Um, uh, what would we put into the service of teaching? But in, in terms of like the scholarly um, productivity, yeah. it seems that the other critique of um, Gates in particular, and, um, and also uh, made a view was that there was a pseudoscientific language put in the service of African American literary criticism, <laughs> and that it yeah. and that it didn't work, yeah. and that it was it it sort of kept that critical work in the domain yeah. of the academy. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, I you know I believe that one can um, move away from self-consciousness and from honesty um, as, as well. I mean, um, and not put the cards on the table, right? But there is a coin of the realm. Once you say, I'm going to be a scholar in the American Academy, okay? Now, once you've done that, Okay, and I like being a scholar in the American <laughs> Academy. You know, you know the old Saturday Night Live thing. I forget it was Garrett Morris who, you know, they would say, "So, what do you, you know, um, uh, enjoy most about, you know, the strategies of the game? Is it the fielding? Is it the batting?" And he has that standard answer: baseball been very, very good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you can ask, you know, do you like the teaching? Do you like scholarship? Do you like administration? And I got like the American Academy been very, very good to me. Uh, But of course, the, 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 the deal is you have to work like crazy Mm -hmm. to gain the slightest bit of credibility um, at a level where you are called upon by students, by colleagues, uh, or by institutions to share uh, your perspective, point of view uh, that is considered by those who call you to be sort of at the top of the game. Right. Okay? Um, and so anyone who under... Uh, advice from me or mentorship or 
you know, just asking the question, uh, who said to me, well, what do I need to do? And my answer has always been, you need to read everything, you need to study everything, you need to know everything, you need to do 24-7, uh, 365, and once you get tenure, you have to be prepared to do even more because then you're going to have students who are going to ask you for letters of recommendation, and then you're going to be on committees, and you're going to be called to national offices and so forth. So, I mean, my, my sense certainly is like yours. I mean, I do not think that, that Joyce Joyce is anything but a uh, concerned and, and smart scholar uh, who's, who's done important work as a teacher and, and as, as, a, as a scholar. Um, but I, I, I think part of my peak with the way that unfolded was that it, it unfolded in a journal called New Literary History. Uh, and the editor of that journal then was Ralph Cohen. And I had known Ralph Cohen when he was a teacher, not well, at UCLA. And then he moved to the University of Virginia, and we became colleagues at the University of Virginia. And from my perspective now, and I, again, I don't have the year's work in New Literary History through the archives before me or know it, but Ralph had adduced virtually no interest in the black arts, the black aesthetic, <laughs> or, or black literary criticism <laughs> ever. I mean, ever, never, right? I mean, I can say, and I mean, it sounds, you know, I don't, I haven't seen Ralph. I don't know his current status in the cosmos at this point, but um, I remember my first trip to Jamaica uh, and with extramural studies and the then vibrant and alive and, and present Rex Nettlefoot and, you know, um, Miss Lou, uh, I got to go and hear her, Louise Bennett. I mean, it was amazing. It was just a, a mind-blowing trip for me in the, the 70s. And I came back and I was at a dinner party at, um, with Ralph and he said to me, oh, so you've been to Jamaica? I said, yes. He said, what, what, what sort of a place is Jamaica? And I was like, what does he mean by that, you know? And I said, what do you mean? He said, is it an Allen? And I was like, no, not, no, can't be, not for real, really. I mean, he was touted as the, or one of the preeminent scholars of British 18th century wow. literature. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> a little bit of peak, okay, about this man staging this battle royal in new literary history had to do with the auspices under which it unfolded. I later learned, in fact, that a radical, you know, and very important feminist critic, um, Annette Kalani, had in fact urged Joyce to make this sortie into confrontation and controversy and so forth. So, you know, I mean, the aegis of these things can mm -hmm. be um, annoying and troubling and, and so forth. Um, but everyone is subject to critique. I mean, and I, I certainly don't think, you know, I should be in any way immune from this. Um, and I'm always kind of uh, startled or stunned or whatever, you know, surprised that, 
a lot of people have have one view of a troika that would be Joyce, Joyce, Henry Louis Gates, and me that's based upon that article. You never know what you're going to be remembered for. Right, right, right. right. You just don't. Can you read a short portion from the book to give us a sense of the um, actual literary quality of it? I will do that. And I'm going to have to go shortly because I have an appointment that I'm running behind on. Um, but but um, go ahead. I was going to say we could skip that part, too. And I, uh, and I, I can skip right to the end. And no, I, I have highlighted a couple of things. And I have your parameters for reading uh, in mind. So I'm, I'm going to start, and you can edit or, you know. So this is from the preface to the book, Betrayal, um, where I write, I claim, I think fairly, that Dr. King's ultimate demands for world justice included, first, equity of results in matters of race relations, Second, reparations in the form of affirmative action and economic restitution for black Americans. And third, unyielding commitment to anti-imperialism, as well as opposition to U.S. Pax Americana campaigns for global supremacy. Even in the face of this historically verifiable, cogently articulated, courageously and decidedly racially inflected agenda, Black neoconservatives and centrist intellectuals argue that Dr. King most ardently desired only the promised potential of a dream deferred and happy interracial brotherhood located somewhere in a Southern American promised land. I forego or try to ad hominem sensationalism, generalized condemnation, an innuendo where black neoconservatives and centrists are concerned. The following pages represent rigorous scholarly reading practices, seasoned, I hope, with wit. They are meant to garner urgent reader attention, reclaim a legacy, and inscribe my adamant jacques at an enormous betrayal of black liberation work in America. Um, I then make the, not even a disclaimer, it's just the truth, that I don't claim that this is social scientific um, because I don't actually endorse much of what parades itself as socially scientific. I tend to follow a Foucaultian track where that's concerned. Um, so then I look at neoconservatism, and I say on page 64, Lashmian Scarlet enjoins one traditional American Negro spiritual, and I shall be whiter, yea, whiter than snow. Those who made the commute from Brooklyn to the heights of Harlem to attend, quote, the harvest of the proletariat, and here I'm talking about Crystal, or in Crystal and Crowd, were bent all along on eradicating the ghetto-mandated difference between themselves and those who look out over the Caribbean from Paradise Island estates. One of the most convincing ways to show loyalty on the part of the founding neoconservatives to such luxurious pure whiteness 
was, of course, to join forces against black majority interest in the United States to stop, as it were, recruiting black boys to any worthwhile venture or course on which your own forward march toward a kind of racial cleansing is set. Blackness must be abandoned in the office of cultural capital and financial gain. Besides, if one expends and spends capital on the plight and remedies of domestic black impoverishment, there will be insufficient funds for a Pax Americana military to sally forth and intervene in other countries' domestic affairs, bringing them, comma, of course, by stated goal, democracy. Blackness is not only criminally dangerous for neoconservatism, but a too severe drain on the national resource pool to be sustained. And what's interesting about that, of course, is when blacks begin to declare themselves neoconservatives. Um, well, now I talk a bit about King. Um, oh, let me go back. Well, we've already talked about, and I won't read that, um, when Bill Cosby sparked controversy by attacking the black majority. Um, a little bit about McWhorter, and then we'll leave off. Where the ghetto is concerned, McWhorter's feelings are explicit. He has no sympathy for those who remain there. Why? McWhorter recounts his own experience. His mom moved him and his sibling out of North Philadelphia by way of West Mount Airy to the suburban respectability of Lawnside, New Jersey. If work disappears, why not follow the jobs? McWhorter reveals in his plenitude of anecdotes that he has a penchant for the dramatic. He is generally inclined to illustrate his points with loquacious theatricals that bear little resemblance to American reality. <laughs> I believe the question of McWhorter's commitment to analytical, academic, empirical evidence is at the heart of his dark parody of classic African-American literary critical and creative traditions represented by the slave narratives. In the preface to Authentically Black, McWhorter explains that in his race writings, he does not hold himself to an, an academic scholarly standard. Perhaps this helps explain how someone like McWhorter, felicitously gifted with degrees and access to the public square, can realistically and resolutely exert uh, or assert the existence of an empirically verifiable thing called victimology. McWhorter does talk about victimology's actual natural existence and infectious quality, and he explicitly claims victimology is a black cultural trait. Um, I think that's enough of the reading, but, but, but you get the gist of actually looking closely um, in a, a way of critique at the text that have gained just monumental applause, accords, Huge honoraria, um, uh, medals, uh, and and we could go on with oh academies, right? Membership in academies and, mm -hmm. and so forth, and realize that um, at least for me, if I had ever uh, put these things in the forefront of my son's consciousness, or if my father had put those in my consciousness, that somehow I was cursed by a meme or a gene of victimology that would out itself and prevent my seeing the world wholly and clearly. 
I mean, wow, that's, that's a slightly demented, actually. <laughs> Thank you for reading that and giving us explication. Last question. What are you yes. working on now? I am working on two things right now, Vashon. One I'm really happy about, and you said things about um, uh, poetry. I'm, I'm actually trying to put together a volume of new, which means, of course, for me, having evolved over the last five or six years, uh, poems. Um, and at the same time, my, my interests have taken a really sharp uh, diasporic turn, not surprising, um, since so much brilliant work is going on in that field now. And um, I've written a couple of things that, that are diasporically, black diasporically oriented. A recent uh, article that appeared in um, um, African and Black Diaspora, uh, January issue, as a matter of fact, on uh, oceanic consciousness, the glissant phrase, the point of entanglement, and Toni Morrison's novel, Love. And um, then I have coming out in a special issue of Obsidian on Richard Wright, uh, a piece that looks at what I um, call global real estate, of course, alluding to Mr. Dalton and mm-hmm. where he fits in the grand scheme of things. And Wright saying, I could not help but think that this Atlantic enterprise was part of a global machine. I mean, this is brilliantly back in the late 40s and 50s, right, as saying this. Um, so I'm thinking about a, um, a collection, uh, a, a collection of essays that would be in the diasporic mode looking at African-American uh, writers, men and women. Um, that same piece that's in um, uh, African and Black Diaspora it's going to be the lead essay in the uh, published proceedings from the Penn State Conference on the contemporary Afro-American oh. novel. Um, that's that's sort of where, where work is going right now. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today on New Books in African-American Studies. Thank you. We've been listening to Professor Houston A. Baker, Jr. discuss his recently published book, Betrayal how black intellectuals have abandoned the ideals of the civil rights era published by Columbia University Press in 2008. I personally found much to mine in this lively interview because not only does Professor Baker stick boldly to his argument that contemporary black intellectuals have abandoned the ideals of the civil rights movement, but he discusses his love of teaching as a university professor and how he endeavors also to do creative work and what it means to be an active scholar and researcher of African-American life, arts, culture, and politics. I hope you have also enjoyed this interview and that you will go out and get the book and discuss it with your friends.